Hello, everyone. Uh, good morning, good evening, good day, uh, wherever in the world you are. Thank you very much for joining us today for our second virtual symposium of 2023. We're very excited to start the series again with uh, topics that closely follow the tracks in the strategic management division of the Academy of Management in really these sessions, uh, get our vibrant senior activity from you guys joining. So very, very pleased that you're all sharing your time with us this morning. Our today's uh, virtual symposium uh, focuses on strategic resources and capabilities, which is one of the tracks of the division. Earlier uh, in uh, May 2022, we focused on the theoretical foundations of resources and capabilities uh, through one of our resources, one of our meta theory sessions. We're gonna today continue this conversation with a deep dive into particular resources and capabilities that are characterizing today's business activity. Uh, we're very, very pleased and honored to be joined by five distinguished panelists who have uh, studied these phenomenon and focused on these activities, on these uh, topics to a great extent. Uh, Professor Gary Dushnitsky from London Business School, Professor Martin Ganko from University of Wisconsin, Professor Elena Novelli from Bayes Business School, Professor Rob Siemens from New York uh, University, and Professor Deepak Somaya from University of Illinois. I also have a shout out to Elena and Deepak for joining us now, because when we were organizing this, I had not noticed that we'll be in the middle of the Academy of Management Conference Planning, and the two of them are the program chairs of this year's uh, conference on behalf of the TIMTRAC and uh, STR. So thank you for both of you for handling this immense responsibility uh, for the conference and for our community and in between all of them having found the time to join us in today's session. So, uh, since we're all today, I also want to uh, point out to a couple of sessions that the SDR division will be organizing in the next couple of weeks on the month of uh, February, in case these are of your interest. On February 10th, uh, 9 a.m. Uh, Eastern time, we'll have a one hour session focusing on best practices for reviewing for conference staff. And uh, Aldona, who is the, uh, one of the members of the engagement committee of the SDR division, who's also here on the call, uh, and this meeting today has organized it. So feel free to join that. Uh, February 13th, we'll have a virtual uh, symposium focused on the topic of strategic uh, human capital. Uh, my colleague, uh, Philip Mayer-Doyle, who's also on the STREC committee and was here today, uh, organizes that. So mark your calendars for that one too. And on February 22nd, uh, we'll have a virtual symposium about knowledge and innovation track. So I'll be posting uh, the link to our STR calendar in a second so that you can all focus and uh, check those. And I encourage you to join us for those as well. So for today's uh, session on the topic of strategic resources and capabilities of Industry 4.0, this is really motivated by this uh, trajectory, evolutionary trajectory of how each of the industrial revolutions that we have seen in the history, starting with the first one to what is now being called as Industry 4.0, the fourth one really started based on new resources and capabilities that really allowed enterprising actors in every uh, time period 
to flourish and benefit from them. And at the same time, each of these firms in those time periods really started to uh, fine tune, find the different ways to manage, reconfigure these resources and their business models had to adapt in particular ways to those. So since this topic has become quite important and with the, all the changes that are happening in the environment, we thought to have a deep dive into what is important today. And we're gonna do that uh, through five different themes, five, not necessarily resources, but speech of resources that are important. We'll start with uh, Gary talking about funding opportunities in the new era. We'll move to Martin uh, talking about strategic human capital and then Rob talking about data algorithm, the digital era. Then given that for a lot of technological breakthroughs, uh, general purpose technologies have gained increased dominance, uh, Elena will talk about those and we'll wrap up the session with Deepak talking about intellectual property protection and how is it that once you accumulate all of these resources, then you'll need, the you'll need to have structures and mechanisms in place to that enforce them and capture economic value from them. So with this introduction, I'm going to pass it to uh, Deepak, to, uh, sorry, to Gary to start us with the funding opportunities discussion. Uh, Gary, you're muted. That would make it for a very productive uh, session. Um, hello, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, and thank you very much, Maka and the STR Division, for uh, organizing this. Um, I believe this is this is really exciting time uh, to think about what are the changes that are taking place around us and what are all the research opportunities um, uh, that surround us. Uh, my remit was to talk about it from a particular lens, which is the funding lens. And what I want to do is I want to share with you maybe three um, observations and expand a little bit on them. Uh, let me share my deck over here. Uh, hold on. Okay, can you see my slides now? Yeah, perfect, good. So um, for those uh, whom I meet uh, for the first time, my name is Gary Dushnitsky. I'm faculty here at London Business School. Um, recently finished uh, two terms, uh, terms as a uh, the co-editor of the Strategic Entrepreneurship Journal. And I've been thinking or uh, working in the space that uh, overlaps um, a strategy and um, entrepreneurship. And uh, what I wanted to do is I wanted very much in the spirit of uh, what Maka presented, think about what are the issues uh, and opportunities for us to uh, advance our understanding of funding and the use of financial resources in the world that is shaping around us in, in this uh, industry 4.0 um, setup. And so the three topics that I'd like to spend a little bit on, of time on, the first one is implications to uh, strategic factor markets. How does the changes that uh, take place around us affect the ability to operate within the strategic factor markets, of course, with an eye of the financial needs and some of the changes associated with that. Um, next, I would like to jump into a topic that is called, um, that is very much core to, uh, um, to Industry 4.0, which is automation, and specifically the use of um, in tools, software tools, such as 
no code, some of you might call them AI or other solutions, um, and how they affect funding needs. And then finally, I would like to talk a little bit about what does the uh, financing of the development of capabilities, how can that be informed and um, advanced by more holistically, more comprehensively thinking um, about the different sources of uh, financing, what I call the funding buffet. So with that, let me maybe uh, jump in. And the first thing that we um, want to think of is when we think about financial resources, is that money is fungible. fungible. Now, I don't know how you stand on NFTs and, and how you stand on uh, some of these issues, but um, if you understand that money is fungible, um, and that's, I think, the core property or the core uh, feature of it, you understand two things. The first one is that it can be applied or utilized very, very broadly which is why we oftentimes talk about the assembly of financial resources uh, and specifically the assembly of capital, because it can be very useful to hire people, to uh, buy machines, to develop um, capabilities and so on and so forth. Because it's fungible and used for so many different things, it is also one of those data points or um, most common transactions that we see in the context of uh, developing uh, companies and capabilities. Now, the other thing to remember, and in, in that is something that I, I, I hold close to my uh, heart, even though I study financing, it's important to remember that funding is oftentimes a means to an end. The, the goal is not, and especially when we talk about it right now, is not to be the one who raised the most money, it is the one who is actually able to drive uh, the company in the development of capabilities uh, forward. Um, another thing, and this is kind of a blast into uh, all of our um, um, kind of basic uh, um, conversation around strategic factor markets, is that money in and by itself will not allow you to um, generate a, a rent because it can be competed. And so all we need to do, to do is go to Barney's um, seminal work and understand that in the strategic factor markets, in order for you to actually acquire the resources and develop the capabilities that will generate um, a, a rent, you need to either be lucky or have some sort of a unique foresight. Now, this is quite important, and I think we have... Uh, in various streams of literatures, including uh, some people who are present on this call, that have talked about how operating under different strategic factor markets conditions might shape performance because it affects your ability to develop capabilities. Recording in progress. One of the things that uh, that I'd like to um, um, kind of make a point of uh, is this is the point where really strategy and entrepreneurship might connect. And in fact, you've seen uh, a, quite a bit of work that talk about how strategically deploying foresight and entrepreneurial action can be uh, instrumental to winning in the strategic uh, factor market. If I take you back to some of your core uh, entrepreneurship uh, uh, studies, you'll also see how this relates to the concept of awareness, awareness of uh, imperfections in the market that allow you to um, acquire uh, resources and capabilities below the uh, market, 
or the ability to recombine existing resources in a way that creates new value. Why am I telling you all that? I'm telling you all that because when you look at these theories, one major uh, feature of these theories is that they were developed a long time ago. They were developed at a time, at an era, where information was scarce. We, the velocity and richness of data was limited. Here's just a quote by um, uh, McPhee and Eric A. a. Brownstone, uh, who make the observation that the more data crosses the internet every second than were stored in the entire internet just 20 years ago. And so as we are thinking about what might be a source of competitive advantage in the strategic factor markets, one of the things we want to um, realize is that a lot of the theories that we had about foresight and maybe entrepreneurial action have been developed in an information scarce um, um, era. Whereas today, we operate in an information-rich um, era. And so this is one of the key assumptions um, that Sharon Matusik and I uh, talk about when we say that it is high time for us to revisit these assumptions. And already, we know that there are some immediate implications. For example, one of the most, um, um, uh, I think, cited um, papers um, recently is uh, the one by uh, Ramanananda um, and colleagues who talk about the rise of experimentation and how the fact that there's actually a lot of um, information uh, out there uh, facilitates a different path to developing or acquiring resources in the factor markets. It further talks about how that feature allows you to fundamentally economize on financial resources. Another way to say that is potentially think about how much funding is needed and when might it uh, be needed. Um, there are a number of uh, streams of literature in strategy and um, entrepreneurship that then take these insights and look at both the abilities to develop um, an experimentation capability in, in other dimensions thereof. And of course, just to um, um, make the picture whole, I think there's some really interesting um, research opportunities looking at the limitations to operating in information reach and the false comfort that it might provide. There's a nice paper by uh, Kao Koning and Nanda looking at how getting a lot of feedback might actually send companies in the wrong direction to the extent that the pool from which they received feedback might not necessarily represent um, the people that they are going after. And so one domain or one area that I think would be quite interesting is to understand the strategic factor markets, the current assumptions people operate under, as well as some of the challenges that might be associated with that. If I shift gears and talk about automation and no-code capabilities, um, I figured that it would be useful to maybe give an example. Um, I don't know if I need a show of and how many of you would know who this particular person is? Um, I'm looking I'm looking at some of my STR colleagues to see if they know. No, they don't. Okay, they, they won't. Uh, um, uh, there we go. Some, some people know who that is. So this is, uh, I understand, a member of the Kardashian family. Uh, this specifically is uh, Kylie Jenner. And the reason that uh, I share that is 
First, because it breaks a little bit the flow of this monotonic presentation. Um, but second, because Kylie Jenner is known to be, I think, one of the youngest billionaires. And when she sold her company, um, <clears throat> at that time, she had only seven full-time employees. A billion dollar, almost billion dollar company employing only seven full-time employees. And when you look at why is that the case, part of it is because it's built on an automation platform, on a no-code software solution that is called Shopify, that basically captured a lot of the dimensions that the business uh, traditionally executed and literally put them as a what we call no-code, an automated um, uh, platform that enables all of these things. Now, this is a revelation and a revolution to somebody who studies uh, funding and financial needs. Because historically, to develop these companies, you had substantial capital needs. You needed a lot of money upfront, which raised a lot of questions about managing the information asymmetry and uncertainty that uh, revolved between you and your potential funders. To the extent that many companies operate under the in the world that Kaylee Jenner was take, able to take advantage of using this no-code platform, in this particular case, it's Shopify, a platform that allows you to operate an e-commerce business. Um, the funding needs are fundamentally different. In fact, just on the way to the office, I was in the subway, it's not the subway anymore, in the tube, um, and these were the advertisement for this um, no-code platform, Shopify. And maybe one of the interesting features of it is that I get the ability to have a full e-commerce company for $29.99. Very different funding needs than the $3 million I needed in the past. So in some of my work, I've looked at what does that mean? And I specifically looked at e-commerce companies that use these platforms and those that do not. Those that use these automation tools raise money um, later and raise less money. A lot, of the a lot of the capabilities are built into the platform and so they need less money to finance it. Interestingly, also, their exit profile looks differently. They don't go big or go bust, as is captured by the column on the right. Rather, many of them actually um, execute and grow these companies. And so the second point is that automation and no-code tools also change the financing needs and the capabilities that are developed. And if I quickly... Um, and, and the other thing, and this is research, um, uh, ongoing research, because it changes the funding needs, it also changes the location of where opportunities are being pursued. Um, this is a heat map that shows you the ratio of Shopify-based businesses compared to traditionally financed VC financed businesses. And you see that uh, it is the less um, common entrepreneurial hub that seems to exhibit more entrepreneurial activity. If I just um, wrap this up with a one briefly one last observation, 
not all of the not all of the industry 4.0 are e-commerce businesses or online businesses some of them called for deep technologies for significant time horizons and so on and so forth and the reason I mentioned that is because the literature has come to realize that the plethora of different financing sources and many people including many people on the call have looked at those and that can be venture capital corporate VCs crowdfunding accelerators and other at the moment a lot of the literature looks at these different settings or different sources and assume that they are susceptible to similar frictions as I mentioned information asymmetry uncertainty and the so on and so forth one of Of the interesting opportunities for us to think of is to what extent can these sources work together or next to each other in order to support different types of capability development and rather than take too much time because I'm mindful of the other panelists let me just leave you with this map which I call uh, the funding buffet that helps us understand how the different sources of capital are not just um, operating under the same premises and, and give rise to the same strategies, but actually differ on multiple dimensions. And I think one of the interesting things to do would be to understand what funding strategies might be uh, appropriate for what business strategies in different domains um, of the industry 4.0. I'm more than happy to answer any questions and, and uh, take this further. But for now, let me just uh, thank uh, Maka and the organizers, and I'll stop sharing the slides. Thank you very much, Gary, for this enriching discussion. Uh, we'll go next to Martin Ganko. In the meanwhile, if uh, the audience have any questions, please feel free to start entering them in the chat so that we can keep a record of that. Right. Can you see my slides? All right, so thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Maka. I would like to thank organizers and, and Maka for organizing this uh, wonderful symposium and the opportunity to, to discuss some of these uh, interesting topics. Um, so it's very cold in Wisconsin this morning, so I am a little <laughs> bit, uh, <laughs> it's been a little bit, uh, so I apologize if my voice uh, doesn't, sound, doesn't sound great. So we have uh, sub-zero temperatures, a little cold spell. Uh, in Wisconsin and I think in, in big parts of the US. Um, so all right, so, so I'll talk a little bit about uh, the role of human capital and how human capital interacts with, uh, with uh, the, the, the industry 4.0. And this is based on my ongoing work uh, with uh, actually two, this is based on two papers. They both are being revised right now. Uh, one is with, with Andy Elzaedi, who is at Santa Clara University. And then the second project was with Evan Starr and Ben King. And Ben King is uh, joining Tulane uh, starting in September. All right, so I have a few disclaimers here. So first of all, this is not going to be an exhaustive uh, list of how um, this industry 4.0 maybe interacts with human capital. It's based grounded in my own work and there may be other views or angles that may be insightful or more insightful. 
So, so, so what, what this really means is, and, and I would like to kind of ground it a little bit in, in what's going on. So, of course, as we know, um, I think, you know, I, I like to trace all of this to essentially semiconductor revolution that allowed a, a very high rate of computational power um, to sort of accumulate over a short period of time. You know, as we know, the Moore's law essentially is sort of the processing power was doubling every two years or every 18 months. Uh, for a very long period of time, and this allowed that we have enormous amounts of computational power available. And this is, you know, we has, as Gary talked about, we have very low cost of information processing and dissemination and transfer. And, and, and on top of that, you know, we have tools which now, because of the immense computation, they became available. Uh, you know, these tools were around for a long time just because we have uh, so computational power. Now these things think, and can be actually deployed and they can be used in business context. So all the machine learn, learning tool and deep learning, uh, of course, is, is really changing many, many industries. So this is a kind of a tremendous, I think, explosion of possibilities that this is this is bringing. And at the same time, we have new competitive dynamics and rise of platforms and many things that uh, people are studying. So this is kind of all good and very, as we see on the, on the right, this is a very sort of a steady and, and very uh, impressive trajectory that we are experiencing in many industries. However, there's also a growing evidence that this has, uh, there is something, something else sort of going on. And, and we have a number of studies now showing that if we are looking at sort of innovative productivity, or if we are looking and like these are, this is from uh, Nick Bloom's and co-authors papers, essentially looking at, uh, you know, over long periods of time, the research productivity is declining. It takes more researchers to achieve the same output. And even in the context of semiconductors so on the right side, if you look on, on Moore's law, we kind of see even in the same context, we see the same, uh, we see the same pattern. Um, in different contexts, so there's also what is called an Irum's laws. This is actually from, um, from pharmaceuticals, we're seeing a similar trend. It takes more and more money to develop drugs. So the, the productivity, the research productivity appears to be declining, although, you know, with COVID and some recent sort of changes, there may be some sort of uh, patterns, maybe a little, a little bit different in recent years. But over the long periods of time, we see sort of similar, similar trends. It becomes harder to, uh, to innovate. Uh, in this context as well. So if we look at entrepreneurship, we again see, see very similar patterns. So it's not just about the research output or innovative output. Uh, when we look at entrepreneurial entry, although I, I recognize that there is a debate ongoing in these things, to what extent um, this trend may be reversing or, or maybe there are some sort of fluctuations here. But so far, it appears we have lots of data showing that the firm entry on the, you know, we, the kind of the entrepreneurial dynamism is declining. So, for instance, on the left side, we have firm entry that is going down, even though the firm exit is about the same. And on the right side is a job, job reallocation. It seems to be declining as well. And then, of course, some authors, there's a, there's a number of now explanations that have been proposed. You know, why is this occurring? And different people may have different favorite explanations. One I would highlight um, in the in the note below is uh, is is that you know some people are attributing to slowing down of sort of knowledge flows you know as we mentioned before the knowledge flows and, and we know that knowledge flows are occurring primarily through mobility so we have mobility declining 
and um, you know employee entrepreneurship declining maybe it's not so surprising to see that we also have knowledge spillovers declining and you know some people are attributing these declines to exactly less knowledge being kind of free flowing through the economy so um, there's a you know again we can look at a number of other indicators if we are looking at for instance the productivity gap between the leading firms and other firms that is sort of you know growing and of course this is maybe not surprising that we see these large firms that are really at the cutting edge of technology we have the the Googles of the world and then we have kind of you know all the other companies so the gap in terms of in terms of productivity is 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 increasing and at the same time we we kind of see a similar pattern when it comes to overall overall dispersion that is uh seems to be declining with only few firms kind of at the at the top um so what are some potential explanations for this and I I I think there's one which I would highlight and there's one which we are kind of building off of in this in this in this paper and this in this work which is was proposed by by Ben Jones and and the whole idea is here that in many industries and this is not a pattern that may hold everywhere but in many technologically intensive industries we have this interdependence this complexity of knowledge grows over time where the new knowledge is uh, not only replacing the old knowledge but the old knowledge is, is sort of interdependent with the old knowledge so the complexity grows over time and because there are limitations in what people can learn and, and comprehend over time uh, it, it sort of means that human capital is becoming more specialized so we have and, and Ben is in his work and, and Brian Utsi and others are looking at this where the time to get a PhD is, is getting longer we have you know individual knowledge is becoming more specialized we have a rising importance of teams and um, you know increased focus on, on knowledge combinations and overall kind of the complexity of knowledge in many settings again this is not a universal trend but in many uh, technologically intensive settings uh, the complexity of knowledge is um, is increasing so um, there's also some recent evidence about this also <clears throat> in, in, in sort of different contexts. So this is a, a Yu Hang Ding, who is on the, a doctoral student on, on the market, actually, uh, who is looking at this in his dissertation, where he's looking at these patterns across many different industries. And uh, using US Census data, and he kind of fi he's finding patterns which are very consistent. So the innovation, the, the the complexity of knowledge is increasing over time, and uh, the effects are stronger for sort of more skilled workers and highly ranked employees, and so on. And we kind of observing some of these patterns consistent with these arguments that I mentioned before. There's fewer quality opportunities spill over to other firms. So um so so what are some so so what, what 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 i am doing with andy for instance is we are thinking about this is a theoretical paper and so we are for instance thinking about some implications for human capital management of these trends and and um i would just highlight few here so the the paper has more uh but one i think what is interesting what we know typically about um human capital specificity is potentially changing so we have rise of specialized human capital but the specialization is tied to the to the industry and technology rather than to the firm 
And at the same time, we have a lower mobility because of uh, the increasing interdependency. So this is something which the traditional theory about sort of firm-specific and industry-specific human capital may not necessarily predict. And we have patterns which are, because of these underlying technological trends, is potentially changing. So we have more specialized human capital tied to a technology, but at the same time, because of increasing knowledge complexity, it kind of overpowers that. And we have uh, we have lower mobility, which, you know, the traditional theory would sort of, you know, would make different predictions. And of course, we have more focus on extreme talent. The entrepreneurship is becoming more difficult. And in the paper, we'll talk about a number of mechanisms that are playing out uh, related to human capital that are sort of driving uh, driving some of these patterns. Uh, we also have preventing sort of outgoing knowledge spillovers and expropriation may be easier for established firms because of the changing nature uh, of knowledge in some of these some of these industries. Uh, we are also looking, so this is in a, in a different study with Evan Starr and Ben King. Um, so what we're sort of seeing in this, and this is using some very detailed uh, data about uh, entrepreneurial processes. So for in, in tech spaces, the complementary assets tend to be more important for the exploit exploitation of employees' ideas. And this is, again, kind of maybe contributing to some of these mechanisms where we sort of see that while smaller firms are better at entrepreneurship, so they're more open to employees' ideas and this notion of not only people are acquiring skills that are relevant for entrepreneurship, but there's also more intrapreneurship in the smaller firms. We see the flip side occurring in, in, in sort of large established firms in the tech space. So in the tech space, you don't see more intrapreneurship in small firms. You actually see it in the larger firms. And, and we're attributing this to uh, more complementary assets being uh, needed in that setting. So, so, so kind of the implication of this, that you have more of these ideas that are absorbed uh, in the uh, larger firms as opposed to flowing to startups. And there is a distinction between kind of the tech and non-tech when it comes to these uh, dynamics. So what else do we know? So this is kind of a few other, uh, few other points here. Um, so noise spillovers to complementers are very important, not just spillovers to competitors. And we also know that there are various dimensions of knowledge that are transferred and applied across firms. And this is including established firms and startups. So we have a lot of, you know, based on our existing work, we know a lot about the type of knowledge that is that is spilling over. And we also know that there are different sort of reactions of different policymakers, and there is lots of discussions across states. And I'm happy to, uh, you know, follow on this in the in the discussion. So what are a few other gaps uh, that maybe you know going beyond, you know, broadening a little bit from the discussion that I had? I think there's a lot of potential studying more this inter section of these new industries or what's happening now in the in the technology space and and strategic human capital i think this area is just emerging we usually do not necessarily when we think about strategic human capital we are more focusing on the firms and and, and maybe kind of a snapshot in time as opposed to these larger trends that are occurring over a long time so i think we have a limited understanding of how human capital management changes in light of these bigger trend trends in the industry, I think there are some opportunities there, and and yeah, and, and this is, will be different for different types of firms. So studying lots of heterogeneity, which is at the core of of our field, and I think the big question with respect to the topic that I just discussed is that 
whether these declines are permanent or are they temporary are we going to see some reversal are we going to see new technologies sort of coming in new inventions changing these trends and then what are, what are the implications for strategic uh, human capital all right so i think i am out of time thank you very much thank you very much martin brock all right um Can you all see that okay? Yep, okay, I think I saw some, some thumbs up. So um, th thanks so much to the organizers. Thank you, Maka. Um, Maka asked me, uh, you know, just like uh, Gary and Martin gave a very big sort of re remit, if you will, um, uh, talk about data, algorithms, everything to do with AI. Uh, I'm not gonna do that. Um, I'm gonna like carve out like a really small little piece um, and I think you'll hear some of the same words that you heard Martin using a moment ago and that you heard Gary using uh, a few minutes ago. And so there, there's sort of a nice uh, thread there. Um, so what I'm going to focus on is AI and the importance of complementary investments. And I'm going to motivate this <clears throat> a little bit differently. I'm going to motivate this by um, thinking about comments that I get when I talk to AI startups, but both as part of my research as well as just um, uh, part of me being a professor talking to lots of students uh, and alumni that are sort of entering this space. Um, so here's something that I hear a lot. This is the puzzle. Uh, there's lots of adoption of AI, but so far limited evidence of, of a payoff, um, so sort of in general, there might be specific cases. Um, and so a solution that I like to think through, and I'll talk, I can talk about some of the boundary conditions here, but um, I like to look at the recent experience of robots and then from that generalized to AI. And again, of course, there gonna be some boundary conditions there. Um, one of the findings there is that investments in robots leads to payoffs for firms that invest in robots on average, uh, leads to increased growth, so employment growth, uh, leads to increased performance, so increased productivity, but only if a firm also makes complementary investments. And this is, again, sort of linking back to some of what Martin was, was saying. And so then draw, you know, drawing from that and switching over to AI. So when investing in AI, firms also need to make complementary investments in human physical and digital capital collectively, I'll call those complementary assets. And I'll, I'll use that term a whole bunch um, during during my remarks. And so I think that this leads to um, some nice research opportunities that I'll sort of touch on very briefly. So so that that's the agenda. I'm going to go, sort of go through each of these bullet points. So here so here's the puzzle piece. So there's been dramatic uh, breakthroughs in terms of what AI can do in sort of lab settings. Um, I when I made these slides, this was sort of pre. Uh, all the hype around chat GPT. So I should have something about chat GPT here, right? But plenty of examples of AI doing great in the lab, plenty of, plenty of things we can point to in terms of AI being commercialized, right? So commercial opportunities uh, coming out of these breakthroughs in the lab. One that I like to look at, and I, I really should update this, but this is looking at uh, uh, US venture capital funding and AI startups, right? You see this dramatic uptick starting in 2013, 2014 or so. Uh, there are other indicators you could look at as well, like uh, patents, for example, and things like that. Um, but so far, mixed results. And I told you about, you know, my my former students and and whatnot that I talk with. You could also just do a search uh, via Google or whatever Bing, and and you'd come up with titles like this from major publications, right? So mixed results. Um, okay. So what's the solution? And by the way, I, I like to approach. Um, increasingly with my research, I like to approach it this way, right? I like to be a little bit client focused. And, and I mean that not in the sense of like a paying client, but the fact that we are all, uh, or 
probably most of us are at a professional school, right? We're not pushing the boundaries of science. I hate to say it, right? But, but we're not. Uh, we have clients. Our clients are our students. They are practitioners. They are policymakers. This is sort of the business that we're in is trying to help them overcome problems. So he here's a real problem that people have identified. Here's one approach to addressing it. I'm going to focus a lot on robots and then try to generalize from them. So robots, uh, like AI, you can think of them as a general purpose technology. If you look at other types of general purpose technologies like steam engine, electrification, early IT, all of these have, have led to growth. What's interesting, though, if, if you look at all of these, and arguably if you look at robots, and I'm going to argue AI, um, you, you don't see that growth at the firm level unless you also see investment in complementary assets. So what, what do I mean by that? I'm going to now start to get very sort of specific with some examples. So um, Paul David has, uh, so I really think back to Paul David, and, and by the way, unfortunately, Paul David passed away recently, as many of you probably know. Uh, so Paul David is an, or was an economic historian at Stanford. Uh, probably his most famous work was on QWERTY, which many of you have probably read. Probably his second most famous work is what I'm referring to here, and I forget the exact title, but Dynamo is, I think, in the, in the title. So he had this paper from 1989. Um, where he's looking at U.S. manufacturing firms, mostly based in the Midwest, um, around you know, sort of early in the 20th century, they are all uh, run on steam power, and they are all switching over to electricity, right? The new general-purpose technology. And what's interesting is it takes a long time for the switchover to happen, and for firms to benefit from the switchover. So on average, it takes five years before these firms see an increase in productivity when they switch from steam to electricity. Okay. Um, and so his whole paper is, well, why is that, right? It's, it's sort of interesting, right? It's a problem, right? He has these clients, like not, not real clients, but you, you know what I mean? Like they're out there, they're, there's a business problem. These firms have a problem when they're switching to this new technology. Why is it? Um, and so what he sees, and so his sort of argument is that um, these new general purpose technologies are not plug and play. I don't think he doesn't use that term, but you know, basically they're not plug and play. So the way to think about this is that um, a manufacturing plant that is optimized for steam, you can't just take the steam out of the production line and then stick in the electricity because the entire production line is set up and optimized for steam and steam does things differently than electricity. So when you're switching over to electricity, you have to reorganize the production line. And uh, in some cases, you have to make additional investments in uh, you know, new capital, it could be human capital, uh, it could be physical capital, et cetera. And, right, so, so there's those additional investments you have to make, but then importantly, and this sort of, uh, I think, links to some of the things that um, uh, Gary was saying, importantly, you don't know ex ante, or you don't have a very good idea ex ante about what these new investments are. And so you have to be a little bit entrepreneurial, right? You have to do a little bit of experimentation. There's a little bit of learning by doing and things like that. All of this takes time before you can ultimately benefit from the switch to new technology. Um, in some of the work that I've been doing, the, the more qualitative work uh, that I've been doing, I'm seeing some evidence in some of the uh, sort of more systematic quantitative evidence, but I'm not going to share that with you today. Uh, I'm going to share with you some of the qualitative evidence that I see of this in manufacturing plants that are adopting new technologies like robots. Um, so this, this company is called Soundwich. Uh, they're based outside of Cleveland, Ohio. They're part of the um, automotive manufacturing supply chain. They, they basically make components. Uh, that go into vehicles. And I'll, I'll, I'll set aside for now uh, what these components actually are. But here's one of their production lines. They've invested in robots. So here's a robotic arm that I'm highlighting with my cursor. 
but they've had to invest in a whole bunch of other equipment as well. And I'll just highlight a little bit of it here. Um, there is this appendage at the end of the robotic arm that they've had to make specially for themselves for this very specific parts that they're making. This is a view of the production line, but now from a slightly different angle. We're behind a cage here, so it's a little hard to take great pictures. Um, you see these blue lights. They've had to invest in these. They help the um, they help the robotic arm line up with the press, the stamper. Uh, you see the video camera here that's capturing sort of digital. Uh, it's, it's sort of capturing uh, a digital picture of what's happening. Uh, it's also doing some analysis. Well, uh, the computer system that this digital camera is linked to, the, all these wires that run in the back of the machine, uh, then does analysis on the different grooves and everything that have been stamped into this piece that they're making to make sure that everything is done correctly. There's a whole bunch of software that went into the system, proprietary software made just for these guys that goes into this. And then this individual here is someone they hired who has very specific skills around setting up and maintaining all of these systems. None of this was stuff that they had before, none of it. They had to invest not just in the robotic arm, but all of these additional complementary assets. And what are they? They are physical assets. They are, if you will, sort of digital assets. They are human capital assets. And they didn't know on day one exactly what it is that they would need to do, right? So there was a lot of experimentation, if you will, sort of really hit, hitting the boundaries of sort of bounded rationality in terms of what it is that this firm needed to do and could do, okay? Um, I'm going to skip over a couple of other examples. So again, investments in robots lead to payoff, um, so long as firms also make these complementary investments. And so my the argument that I'm that I'm trying to make um, is is that when invest you know part of the reason why firms that are investing in AI are so far seeing a you know limited evidence of, of, of a payoff is because firms also need to make investments in these additional complementary assets. It could be human, physical, and, and digital capital. Now let me just go back for a sec to this picture. Um, I tried to be very specific when I was talking about this, highlighting the very specific process. I didn't go into details about what it is that this firm makes, but highlighting how sort of specific all of these investments were in terms of what it is that this firm does. So I want to highlight that word. These are very specific investments that this firm is making. Uh, uh, Gary used the word fungible in his talk and how capital is fungible. These investments that these firms are making are not at all fungible. This is part of the big challenge, part of the big bottleneck, is they know that each time they make one of these investments, the value of the next best use, if you will, think about this from like a transaction cost economics point of view, is very, very low. There's very few other firms out there that make uh, similar products to this firm, if any, right? Um, and so if they screw it up, there's not some secondary market where they can resell some of this stuff, okay? <clears throat> okay, um, so when investing in AI, firms need to make uh, these complementary uh, investments. And so, um, let, let me give you an example. This is, I think, maybe the, the one paper I think that I'm going to highlight other than Paul Davids is a great paper by Christina McElhern and Eric Brynholson. Um, that, again, we're not quite at AI, but this is predictive analytics. So they, they basically have some evidence I'm going to show you that when firms make investments in predictive analytics, they do see the subsequent increase in productivity, but only if they're also making investments in complementary assets. Okay. Um, okay, so um, the y-axis here is the marginal effect of predictive of the investment in the predictive analytics. And you see that for some firms, it's positive. And for some firms, it's positive, but just very noisy, okay? So what's the difference between these two firms? It's firms that make investments in these complementary assets, be it uh, uh, IT, be it human capital, 
uh, or, or be it, you know, other, uh, you know, sort of production processes and, and things like that, right? So th they're highlighting here a whole range of complementary assets that firms need to invest in in order to see uh, growth um, uh, from, from these new technologies. Um, I think the argument is clear. I'm not going to, in the interest of time, I'm not going to summarize it. Uh, instead, I'm going to give you a quiz. Everybody has the raise hand feature. So I'm going to, I'm going to give you a quiz. Well, it's a quiz you don't necessarily know the answer to. All right. I've talked about investing in complementary assets, but how much are we talking about here? So that robotic arm that I showed you a moment ago, that costs about $30,000. Okay. So here's a scenario, a manufacturing firm that invests 30,000 in a robotics arm. How much did it invest in complementary assets? So where on here would you sort of make a little hash mark? So if you think it's another 30,000, that would be one X. If you think it's maybe 15,000, that would be half X. If you think it's 120,000, that would be four X. Maybe it's somewhere in between. Maybe it's off the scale. I don't see any hands. So I'm gonna, I might have to cold call. I'm gonna count down from three, two, one, I still don't see any hands, so I'm going to cold call. And this person- Rob, they have a very rich- uh, Rob, everybody is entering in the chat. Ah. We're having oh, ranges oh, look from 2.5x okay. to oh, 4x. Wonderful. wonderful. I need some AI to quickly do this. And I don't have that May AI. May I serve as a complimentary asset? We, we have so many smart people here. Uh, because I think on average, you guys are getting it about right. Um, on average, it's 3x, okay? So let me just be super clear here. A firm make in, investing $30,000 in a robotic arm can, expe can expect to spend another $90,000 in all of the other complementary assets that they need. And, and by the way, a, a decent chunk of that, to, to Martin's points earlier, is the human capital, okay? Okay, great. So you all did great. I give you passing marks. Um, I lied. I said I, I, there's two papers. There's a third paper that I'm going to mention here, um, uh, only to say that um, if you're interested in what I think of as like other questions in this space that are pressing, um, I have a primer that I wrote for Journal of Organizational Design that talks about sort of strategy and or organizational questions around AI, robots, and um, you know I interesting questions there that, that I uh, co-authored with uh, a former PhD student. Manav Raj. So I've listed a few of the questions there. Uh, we highlight a lot of the research that's been done in this space, at least up to 2019. So of course, it's a little bit outdated now. Um, but I, I encourage you all to take a look at that. And I encourage you all to think about investments in complementary assets. I think, so what I think like a, a nice research direction or research opportunity for folks to think about is systematically trying to categorize these different complementary investments that are needed for investments in AI. And I suspect that these vary a lot across a lot of different settings. And so I would think about, again, the heterogeneity in these complementary uh, investments, as well as the various bottlenecks in different cases that are preventing firms from investing in them. And some of these bottlenecks, I believe, are probably strategic bottlenecks. So again, uh, think back to my example of the robotic arm and how specific those investments are you might then worry if you're that firm about a downstream customer perhaps holding you up um, in a TCE type sense, and that might lead you and sort of disincentivize you uh, from investing in these complementary um, assets. Okay. 
Okay, so with that, I will stop and I'll stop sharing my screen. Thank you again, Maka. Thank you very much, Elena. Now we already had a preview to general purpose technologies with Rob's presentation. Absolutely. So uh, I presume you can see my screen. So thank you very much to Maka for organizing this symposium for uh, to STR. And it's really a pleasure to be here and to talk about general purpose technologies. And uh, the task that uh, Maka has entrusted me with is that of talking about general purpose technologies in connection with uh, Industry 4.0. Now, I'm going to talk about the strategic role of general purpose technologies in these settings. I'm going to talk about what research tells us about these technologies, particularly in connection with previous industrial revolutions. And then I'm going to um, make some suggestions about open questions about these technologies in connection with Industry 4.0. Now, what is Industry 4.0? So when we um, search for Industry 4.0, essentially uh, we are uh, talking about the um, existence of a fusion of technologies such as artificial intelligence, advanced robotics, cloud computing, that is essentially expected to spur an era of industry growth and productivity. The reason why this is talked to in connection with general purpose technologies is that the technologies of industry 4.0, so again, artificial intelligence, robotics, cloud computing, tend to have the characteristics that are typically associated with general purpose technologies. So they tend to be pervasive, which means basically that it can be adapted and used uh, as inputs by a wide range of sectors in the economy. They tend to be improvable. So they are suited to ongoing technical improvement uh, to eventually deliver the superior performance or the lower cost users. They are innovation spawning in the sense that they have the potential to spur innovation in, the, in application fields. Now, when we look at how the world uh, will look like uh, in the context of Industry 4.0, essentially we read um, stories or that depict the world more or less in this fashion. For example, we hear about intelligent factories which are highly digitized, largely autonomous facilities that make decisions, they self-correct themselves, and also make it possible to deliver customized products cost-efficiently and at scale. Now, the core assumption behind this narrative, behind this hype, is that the general purpose technologies that underlie this transformation will be developed at their full potential, securing a high technological performance and effective applicability across domains. However, what we know from prior research has looked at general purpose technologies, particularly in the context of previous industrial revolution, is that there are some key barriers and challenges that need to be overcome for this to happen. So first of all, barriers that concern the development of general purpose technologies. Now, GPTs are often referred to as strategic opportunities because the fact that the technology can be applied to a variety of settings, enabling uh, several opportunities from a strategic standpoint, first of all, the opportunity to tap into synergies. However, as President Trachtenberg noted in their seminal article of 1995, GPTs should really be thought of as opportunities rather than complete solutions. And this is so because they really involve strong innovation complementarities, which essentially um, nods to the uh, idea of investment in complementary assets that Rob was talking about. So essentially, the idea is that when we are looking at a GPT, what we know is that the advances in the GPT really benefit from advancement in the application sectors and advancement in application sectors benefit from advancement in the GPT. 
you will recognize here the famous picture that is in the Brasner Trasmerg original article in relationship with semiconductor. Another example is the steam engine. The steam engine is one of the most uh, famous general purpose technologies, but the reality is that cheaper steam power was achieved only thanks to the fact that in parallel, improved materials enable the opportunity to create better engines and also a superior understanding of thermal efficiency enabled to develop cheaper steam power. Now, this translates in practice uh, uh, in the uh, idea uh, that access to complementary assets and in particularly uh, complementary data and knowledge from application sectors is really essential for the development of general purpose technologies. Let me give an example that comes from uh, one of the technologies of the uh, industry uh, 4.0, which is the, the fact that researchers at Mount Sinai had developed uh, an artificial intelligence tool that was um, trained to spot pneumonia on chest X-rays. Now, the performance of this tool was really great when data from Mount Sinai were fed uh, to the algorithm, but this algorithm was markedly less competent in hospitals other than those it had been trained in. So in general, the problem that uh, the application of these general purpose technologies to the different application sectors is going to face is the fact that, first of all, knowledge of the context is not necessarily codified. For example, in the context of this example, it's important to understand what parameters are key in the detection of pneumonia to be able to design uh, the algorithm and frame the problem. Also, the data from the context are not necessarily standardized, are very far from being standardized in most settings. For example, in this context, the type of CT scan used or the way in which imaging techniques are elaborated differ substantially across institutions, let alone across sectors, across time, across geographies. Uh, and also, the data and the knowledge of the context is not necessarily accessible and is not necessarily accessible to all firms involved in the development of technology. This basically presents substantial coordination challenges, which are highest for actors that are located far away, which basically brings up the question um, that is important for such scholars, which is what forms of coordination are emerging in the context of Industry 4.0? Are, how are the different actors' incentives aligned? And also, how are company strategies going to be shaped by these issues? Second challenge refers to the appropriability of general purpose technologies and once again the importance of access to complementary data and knowledge, but not only for the development of these technologies, but also for the design of effective isolating mechanisms. So, for example, if we think about neural networks as a mathematical method, they are not patentable per se but they are patentable if they are embedded in heart monitoring equipment to detect an irregular heartbeat. This basically means that the developer of a mathematical methods of this kind needs to also have invested in this type of equipment, in this type of knowledge, needs to have access to assets in these areas in order to be able to protect. And obviously, if you think about general purpose technologies, this implies that the same type of investment needs to be multiplied for all the application sectors that they uh, invent or, or firm targets. So appropriability of general purpose technologies is a critical issue. And basically what we know from prior research is that uh, uh, firms that own the complementary knowledge, the complementary assets, and also that have organizational architectures that are designed to unleash communication and learning across sectors are probably in a better position when it comes to appropriating value from general technologies. 
So these, once again, spurs important questions for future research, like what appropriability mechanisms are more effective in the context of Industry 4.0, and also how does this reflect in the evolution of organizational architectures? Now, a related question concerns how can we profit from general purpose technologies? And uh, we reflected uh, on this issue uh, in the context in an art, in the context of an article uh, together with Alfonso Gambardella, Sophie Eaton, and David Tees, in which we basically took the original profiting from innovation um, framework that David developed in 1986, and we applied that to the context of general purpose technology. So essentially, uh, in a nutshell, what we noted in that article was the fact that if you think about a discrete technology, when it comes to its commercialization, there is essentially one core decision, which is whether to contract that technology. So I will contract it to someone who is downstream and will embed it into a product and make money out of it. Or if I want to integrate that technology and integrate downstream myself and integrate the technology into a product or service. Now, when it comes to general purpose technologies, the um, decision um, uh, framing that we need to make is more complex. And it involves also a second dimension, which concerns the horizontal scope of commercialization. So I have a technology that can potentially be applied across a variety of application sectors. Do I want to pursue and target all those applications or I want to focus? And obviously, we can see why this question becomes relevant uh, given that we have described how targeting one specific application requires investing in complementary assets, data, and knowledge. So this essentially uh, brings to the definition of four key strategies. The first strategy is that of uh, contracting and, and focusing on a narrow uh, set of application sectors, which is typically uh, followed by several fintech startups, for example. The second strategy is that of integrating and maintaining a narrow focus in terms of application sectors. And we can think of companies like Zalando who are making, for example, um, core development uh, in terms of artificial intelligence tools, but they are focusing mostly on one sector, which is retail. Or companies like Amazon in uh, 2002, when they had just uh, started Amazon Web Services, but they were focusing the use of that technology on a really limited set of uh, uh, application sectors. Strategy number three is what we have in mind when we think about the traditional diversification strategy and is a strategy that some of the tech giants are employing these days. And finally, strategy number four is a strategy that um, in my work with other colleagues, as well as uh, Audra, Rashri, Sergey, and Sonali, um, talk about as uh, specializing in generality. So the idea that the firm will target a variety of application sectors, but instead of integrating downstream, they will contract out the technology. And in the article, we talk about the opportunities and challenges associated with these four different strategies. So once again, this uh, brings up several questions like which firms are likely to be, be in a better position to profit from general purpose technologies. And interestingly, when it comes to general purpose technologies, it is not only the small firms that are going to be in a weaker position, but also the larger undiversified firms and firms that have traditional siloed architecture. Finally, I think that one important challenge to think about is uh, uh, goes beyond the uh, technologies themselves. Uh, because if we think about the previous industrial revolution, a key question is how did they overcome these challenges and eventually achieve the um, opportunity to observe productivity increases and growth? Now, for those of you interested in this question, there is this very beautiful mm -hmm. book by Joel Mokir, The Gifts of mm -hmm. Athena. 
And basically, John Mokir talks about industrial enlightenment, the invention of new methods of invention, which essentially was constituted the ultimate general purpose technology. So the idea that uh, Together with the development of technology, productivity growth requires social changes that can transform the way in which knowledge is developed, retained, and accessed. And one quote from, from that book uh, struck me as particularly relevant, uh, um, which refers to the fact that industrial enlightenment was really um, based on the idea of scientific, uh, the scientific method and scientific culture and the parallel use of theory development and experimentation as the basis of knowledge development. So it when talking about it, he said, if a manufacturer does not know the nature of the fermentation that turns sugar into alcohol, he or she can still brew beer and make wine, but will have only limited ability to mass produce at low prices. Potential inventors will waste valuable resources in fruitless searches for things that cannot be made. The range of experimentation possibilities that needs to be searched over is far larger if the searcher knows nothing about the natural principle at work. Now, why this is relevant in the context of uh, Industry 4.0? It's very relevant because one of the key um, improvements that we expect from this new revolution is the fact that production is going to be more autonomous and there's going to be autonomy in decision making. So how to make decision becomes a, a very relevant question for uh, scholars. And for STR scholars in particular, one question that is relevant is what decisions remain strategic in the context of Industry 4.0? How should this decision be made? What is the role, the role of biases in determining decision making? And also, what are the implications of theory-driven versus data-driven decision making and under what conditions? So I think I am out of time, so we'll pause here, but I look forward to hearing more from colleagues. And thank you once again to the organizers. Wonderful. So, Deepak. Thank you, Maka. Let me start sharing my slides and let's make sure you can see this. Good. All right, for those who don't know me, uh, I'm Deepak Somaya. I'm at Illinois. Uh, also, for my sins, um, the program chair for STR this year. Um, so a, a couple of things about the way I'm going to approach intellectual property. One uh, is that uh, I'm going to be much more impressionistic than perhaps the other speakers, and so not talk too much in detail about individual papers. Uh, and then secondly, uh, I think I'm following Maka's directions, maybe a little too literally in terms of exact components that I'm going to talk about. So uh, I'm going to start with a, with a broad uh, introductory set of comments particularly on why intellectual property is important, and then uh, give a quick outline of what the literature has done so far, and, and then highlight some opportunities uh, in the literature going forward. Um, among other things, I think I'm going to be talking a little bit less about Industry 4.0 specifically, but more broadly about intellectual property uh, and intellectual property strategy research. So uh, why is IP important? Uh, and this is the reason that I uh, started working on IP as a doctoral student. So essentially, if you think that we're actually moving towards a knowledge economy and we continuously keep moving further and further in that direction, uh, then, of course, uh, one of the challenges we face is that knowledge assets are very hard to possess or control. And so if there's some kind of a way to exercise some ownership or control over knowledge, uh, that's going to be valuable and it's important to really understand how one, one exercises that uh, from a managerial and strategic perspective. Uh, now, one of the things that I will say is that IP is also different, in fact, different from all the types of resources we've discussed today, right? So 
it's not the same as general purpose technologies or financial capital or human capital or data or algorithms. And in one very important way, because it is not itself a resource, right? It's not itself a knowledge asset. Uh, instead, what IP does is it confers some title or some mechanism of exercising control over knowledge assets. So it's better to think of IP as property rights or think of it as isolating mechanisms uh, and not so much as resources themselves. And I think this is something that um, is not sufficiently pervasive in our understanding within the field uh, of what IP means. Um, so let me provide some broad contours of what uh, the existing research on IP sort of looks at and does. Right? So um, just some background for folks who are not as familiar with IP. I know there's a mixed crowd here. So uh, I want to highlight that when we think about intellectual property, there are a few different types of property rights here. And of course, a lot of us are familiar with patents, but uh, there are other property rights that are, some of them are similar to patents in that they actually confer uh, some kind of actual title. So if you notice my slide and I put that in there as a prop, it says, you know, copyright with a little circle and says Deepak Sumaya and has uh, a year there, right? So that's essentially sort of asserting some kind of ownership, actual title over uh, the creative content in these slides, right? So that could be one way of thinking about, um, uh, about what IP does. But then there's also a bunch of things that fall under the IP umbrella that uh, are mostly sort of prescribing certain kinds of actions. So for example, in the context of trade secrecy, we talk about misappropriation as something not being allowed, meaning that somebody can't reach out and essentially uh, grab somebody's trade secret, um, sort of in a, in, a, uh, in a malfeasance kind of way. But if you happen to reinvent the same thing or come across the same knowledge on your own, uh, then all bets are off, right? So, and similarly, we have uh, with non-competes and non-solicits and other types of agreements like that, where again, certain kinds of behavior are sort of prescribed. So people moving to a uh, to a competitor or uh, trying to take a client with you when you move, those kinds of things are prescribed, but it's not actually sort of ownership uh, over the human capital or over the relationship uh, with a client, et cetera. So you will see that some of, you know, all of the things that we've talked about there, we're talking about property rights or some amount of control over things. And the things that are underlying there are different types of knowledge assets, right? So whether it's human capital, whether it's actual innovation uh, or knowledge, or whether it is uh, relationships, these are all different types of knowledge assets that are very important in the economy today. So um, underlying all of this, of course, is the fact that knowledge itself uh, has these well-known public goods properties. So multiple people can own the same knowledge without there being any diminution in the ability to use it. Uh, and so it does place limits on what IP can do uh, very broadly in terms of providing ownership or control over knowledge. And that's something that's important to keep in mind anytime one thinks about uh, intellectual property strategy. So uh, one framework that's uh, outlined in, in my review paper back in back from 2012, uh, which I think continues to remain useful, uh, certainly when I think about IP rights, is when you think about IP rights, there's sort of three broad domains in which the, the activities sort of typically occur. Uh, one is uh, how do you acquire the rights? And there's a number of different ways that you could acquire rights. Uh, and, you know, something as simple as copyright, just the creation of something in a fixed medium, kind of like how these slides actually do, uh, that, that automatically creates the right. But in other cases, you actually have to take more affirmative steps, right? So uh, patent application and examination and granting, for example, to get a patent. Uh, the other sets of actions that uh, occur around IP 
involve licensing or sharing those rights, and then finally enforcing or litigating those rights. I think it would be, um, and let me also sort of highlight that this in turn sort of applies to all of the different types of IP that uh, we see out there. Uh, and I, I, I would say that perhaps a vast majority of the research that we see tend to be in this group and this group alone, right? So it's the acquisition of rights and its patents. Um, but I think there's a lot of interesting uh, questions about all of the other types of IP and as, as well as the other domains in which IP uh, can be used, uh, both sharing or, or licensing as, as well as litigating. Um, so at a very high level, I would say that a lot of our research, and in fact, even when we use IP-related data, there's a huge chunk of research that uses the data for other purposes, right? IP generates a lot of different types of data that we use to measure other things. Uh, it might be to measure innovation, might be to measure uh, mobility barriers and things like that. But even when we are actually looking at IP itself and its impact, uh, I think a lot of the questions that we tend to sort of look at uh, have a very strong economics or policy flavor, uh, often builds on the economics of innovation. There's kind of a very strong emphasis in this literature on empirical test um, tests, and uh, largely we sort of uh, you see a lot of work that's um, in the spirit of exogenous policy shocks and what does that mean for innovation in that kind of spirit. Um, so you can see research that that focuses on things like how uh, IP scope or strength might affect a whole bunch of different outcomes like licensing, litigation, financing, entrepreneurship, etc. Uh, I think what we have seen uh, less research on, which is sort of an area that I think certainly for the strategy field is very interesting, and of course there has been quite a bit of work here, but I think we could certainly do more, uh, is uh, on what we might think of as endogenous IP strategy or endogenous appropriability, which is a term that Gary Pisano coined uh, many years back, which I thought was really interesting, because it juxtaposes what we think of as IP strategy against this idea of an appropriability regime. I think a lot of folks uh, certainly trained in the economics of innovation tend to think of IP as something that's exogenously given. And so this idea that firms or managers can actually undertake action that can, sh that can shape IP, that can actually uh, create some value out of IP uh, is one that's kind of particularly important for the strategy field, because I think that's where we can really add value uh, and contribute. So, uh, how can you think about the strategic management of IP? I think there's uh, quite a bit of work on this, and some of this is, you know, goes back about a decade or more. Uh, and broadly, you can think about three types of strategies: you know, some kind of proprietary strategy, trying to uh, prevent competition from arising in a, in a particular commercial space; uh, defensive strategies, which are essentially allowing you to actively operate in a particular space; uh, and finally, leverage strategies, which you can think about as some way of capturing rents, right? So if you connect that to our broader RBV, and since we are talking about resources today, if you think about our RBV sort of hat, uh, the first corresponds to kind of a competitive advantage type of argument, the second to a competitive parity kind of argument, and the third uh, to some way of capturing rents, but possibly temporary, uh, source of temporary rents uh, in, in the third case, right? Um, so uh, the three domains we talked about earlier, I think you know you can think about these broad types of strategies ha as having implications for all three domains. You can think about how uh, defensive strategies might play out in the acquisition of rights, for example. You can also think about how it might play out in uh, in litigation. You can think about how it might play out in licensing as well. So let me summarize a few research gaps that I see. Uh, certainly, there are more, and I 
you know, qualify these by saying that this is kind of what seems to interest me. Um, I think the first thing which uh, remains a really big opportunity is kind of an IP strategy agenda, right? One that focuses much more on the kind of value that the strategy field can add. Uh, and I think the strategy field actually can add a lot of uh, value in terms of the in terms of understanding the use and the value of IP rights. Uh, and I think some of that requires us to break from our sort of taste for economics like IP research, where the focus is much more strongly on policy implications uh, and more to sort of think about what managers and companies can do about IP and how they might act in different ways uh, to strengthen their IP protection in certain areas or to share IP in certain areas and so on and so forth. Uh, and I think part of this broader agenda also involves um, building a community of folks who, uh, you know, community of scholars who understand each other's work and can provide uh, feedback and, uh, and constructive critique, uh, as well as reviewing, right? So at the end of the day, if it's at least in part a matter of taste, you need uh, a pool of reviewers and arbiters in the field who sort of, uh, who share the same taste for research as well. Uh, it does require us to learn uh, at least some basic IP law. Uh, I think in general, if, if your uh, econometrics is really strong, uh, you would also expect that your knowledge of IP law in this area, if you're actually uh, working in this area, is at least rudimentary. Uh, and sometimes that's not the case, which I think is, is an important gap. Um, so um, there's sort of opportunities across different types of IP domains and types. Uh, I think that we've uh, had a lot of research on obtaining IP rights, but I think less so on the litigation and enforcement dimension. So I think there, there's lots of opportunity. Uh, there's a lot of work on patents, uh, but less so on other types of IP. So again, I think there's an opportunity there. Um, and then um, uh, the, the different types of strategic choices with respect to IP. So along the lines that I was just discussing for, if you think about um, proprietary or defensive strategies, what is it that companies are actually trying to do in that space? What is it that managers are trying to do? Um, and more, I think more importantly, sort of combining all three of these opportunity spaces, right? So if you think about um, not only different types of actions, but also different types of IP and how they complement each other uh, and how different types of strategies might work um, either in a complementary fashion or in a sequential fashion, um, those, I think, are particularly interesting uh, questions that I don't think we've really scratched the surface of. Um, so uh, within certain IP domains, I think that there are particularly interesting opportunities to do more work. I think um, in the defensive space, we have tended to put a lot of emphasis on IP portfolios. Uh, I think there's, there's a lot of room to sort of go beyond that um, in that space. Uh, also in the leveraging strategy sort of idea, I think how IP rights play a role in standards competition and human capital. Um, there's more work in those two spaces, but I think when you think about suppliers and relationships with suppliers and, uh, and clients and customers, I think there's lots of opportunities there as well. Um, I think particularly when we think about Industry 4.0, I think um, uh, complexity and uncertainty come into the fore. I think these are really big opportunities. I think the, the multi-invention problem where, you know, we've talked a lot today about the complexity of, of actually um, rolling out uh, these newer technologies. They, they build on many different innovations. Uh, and so I think that uh, how we actually think about uh, intellectual property in those very complex domains where there's a very strong multi-invention problem, if you will, 
uh, I think is, is, a, is a very fruitful area. Uh, the other really fruitful area, I think, is thinking about uncertainty in the context of intellectual property. There's been a recognition that uh, we need to think about IP as strategic options. And, uh, you know, there's been some good work, even going back all the way to Pakis in the 1980s, looking at that kind of real option perspective of IP and using it to value IP. Uh, but I think managerial action that sort of incorporates uncertainty and, and strategic options uh, is perhaps uh, less studied. So that's another, I think, very important opportunity. Uh, and last but not least, and I'll leave this at a very high level, um, thinking about uh, IP as a value capture mechanism and how it interacts with all the things that we do to actually create value uh, is, is really a, a big area of opportunity. Uh, I think that this is also a space where we can contribute very meaningfully to the practice of IP strategy, in part because uh, within firms, uh, there's often a sort of a, a, a siloed um, nature of, uh, of IP management where the capture mentality is very strong uh, in the silo that actually handles IP uh, without sort of considering the kinds of implications it might have for how you actually create value, how you innovate. Um, how you develop human capital, how you build relationships, uh, and so forth. Uh, so I'll stop there. Uh, happy to take questions um, and interact with my colleagues here as well. Okay, many thanks. Uh, this was a great session, already learning a lot. I was taking notes throughout the presentations. Uh, we already have four questions in the chat. Uh, so Noor asked, uh, the possibility of reconciling some of the trends with respect to the decrease in entrepreneurial activities, but what Gary was talking about as lower barriers to entry and how the two of them come together, which I think also connected to Martin's thought and some of the empirical evidence that he was showing. Uh, uh, Tomas had a question with respect to the focus on extreme talent rather than the general strategic dimensions of human capital. Uh, Deepak had a question for Rob with respect to the nature of the complementary assets and the extent to which they're required to be internally housed or could they be externally sourced from third parties. And Ali had questions about uncertainty with respect to general purpose technologies and their downstream applications for Elena. Uh, if there are other questions, uh, would you please raise your hand? You can probably unmute yourself and raise them to the group and then uh, we'll go back to the panelists for some reflections. Okay, I don't see any hands. So it looks like we already captured everything in the chat. So uh, perhaps we can go with the order that we started, Gary, Martin, Rob, Elena, Deepak, for quick reflections maybe on each other's presentations or in response to these questions, please. Sure. Um, so I think uh, on the question of um, what are the trends that we see in entrepreneurship uh, and the overall decline on the one hand versus uh, the reduction in barriers to entry, I think that uh, there are two dimensions to look at. The first one is really to understand what what are the general kind of economy-wide uh, measures come to to look at? And I think mostly those are driven by policymakers who are looking at entrepreneurship as a vehicle to drive employment to the extent that uh, Kylie Jenner employed only seven individuals. Maybe they're not tuned to uh, capture that. So one of the interesting things to do is to, to really understand that. Uh, I think, Noor, you mentioned the point that uh, it, it relates to conversation about necessity entrepreneurship versus growth uh, entrepreneurship and and if I'll if I'll actually 
uh, take your words, maybe there's some, something around an opportunity entrepreneurship that is actually distinct from, um, from uh, a necessity and growth. And I think there are people uh, such as Ben Allen and others that are talking about zebras versus unicorns and so on and so forth. Um, this is this is a very long way of saying that the landscape of uh, entrepreneurial activity can actually uh, can potentially be enhanced. And one of the things that we're seeing is that uh, Industry 4.0, both the opportunities it opens and the tools it provides might allow us to think more broadly about um, this kind of entrepreneurial action. So these are just a couple of quick reactions. Thanks. Yeah, I just I, I agree with everything what Gary was saying. I, I would just maybe add a very, very small point that the, the one question is obviously the heterogeneity as well, right? So we may have some industries, if you're looking, I don't know, in you know retail or software, there may be industries where the you know barriers really matter, the lowering barriers, and you can outsource many activities that really matters. But maybe there's some, you know, many other industries that um, something like that is not as easy. And again, if we're looking at these economy-wide trends, and as Gary said, if you're looking at kind of the the, the firm formation across many industries, then maybe these sort of more difficult ones sort of overpower the ones where it's much easier. So there's a question of heterogeneity here as well, uh, how these two trends can actually be reconciled, but they seem to be occurring at the same time. Yeah, thanks. Um, <clears throat> thanks, everybody. Um, I, uh, I think I answered the question that was in chat, and I've gotten a few other sort of one-on-one -on -one questions that I believe I've answered as well. And I'm more than happy to follow up with, uh, with folks uh, offline. Um, I, I loved all these presentations, and I, you know, I, I see sort of threads that intersect through all of them. Uh, I just want to like step back for one minute and just uh, say one thing. I think in our field, oftentimes uh, there, there's, especially when you're studying technology, the way uh, right, all of us have touched on sort of new technologies in some way, shape, or form. There's often the question, well, what's new here? If in terms of like theoretically, what's new? And um, it's a question I hate because it. It, it, right, we we're talking about barriers a moment ago. It throws up a barrier to the researcher where they have to basically answer the question before they even started to explore the question itself. Um, and so I encourage you to be motivated by your curiosity in these new technologies and to explore them, uh, look into them, do research on them. There might be something new, there might not be. And, and that, that's okay, that's sort of part of the research process. Okay, so um, thank you, everyone, and I'll, uh, I'll answer uh, Ali's question. So the question is about uh, how we should think about uncertainty in connection with GPTs, and uh, I mean this is uh, the fundament one fundamental question always associated with general purpose technologies. If we read the work uh, by Rosenberg. Uh, when he talks about lasers, uh, he basically tells us that the developer of lasers didn't even want to patent the technology because they were not sure if it was applicable at all. And we know how applicable lasers have become. So this is a fundamental question in terms of implication for firm strategy. Uh, the key question is which firms are better off uh, in the face of uncertainty. So I think it's important to make a distinction between uh, uncertainty that is exogenous, in which case I think that a key source of competitive advantage is the ability to recognize the applications that are going to be uh, more promising. And uh, 
but part of this uncertainty can be endogenous. So in this case, a source of competitive advantage is the ability to have a superior risk-bearing ability, the ability to basically experiment with different types of applications. And if we see big companies like Amazon or Apple or Google, that's what we see. They, we see that they have technologies that are generally applicable and they experiment with a variety of applications. Some of them are successful, some of them are not successful. What is interesting here is that in this context, in the context of general purpose technology, we see an advantage of firms that are diversified compared to firms that are just so scope as an advantage over scale or to use the famous uh, quote from um, Dick Nelson essentially we are talking about firms that have their fingers in many pies so I'm happy to follow up later on on this but thank you for the question yeah I wanted to first of all thank uh, all the panelists and thank all of you and thank Marka in particular for putting together this very nice session um, I, in my comments, I sort of focused on intellectual property, but I really found the other panelists' comments very interesting, and there are a number of them that I'm interested in. I think if I were to pull on a few threads that I, I think sort of characterize this transformation that we're going through in our in our economy, um, I think it uh, there's some fundamental questions about organization that it raises, um, both. Um, how firms are organized and, you know, what gets done within firms, what gets done outside firms, uh, the organization around platforms, which is sort of this interesting hybrid um, sort of form. Um, but then also uh, within firm, how um, how uh, people are managed and how uh, you, you actually take advantage of people's human capital. Lots of interesting questions there. Uh, and there are interesting questions about scale and scaling and sort of, you know, uh, Elena's point uh, sort of underscores that there's sort of when, when does scale matter, when do when is scope more important? Uh, I think uh, many of these technologies have the property that there's no kind of plant size limit on how much you can exploit them, right? They can exploit them uh, potentially until you exhaust the entire, uh, entire demand of the planet. Um, so I think there's lots of interesting opportunities in that space. And of course, in the backdrop of all of this, there's uncertainty, complexity, and the need for experimentation to figure things out. So if you think about that as the sort of problem space that we're operating in, there is a, a huge opportunity for great research. And a lot of you would be doing that research. So I look forward to reading it, seeing it, uh, and all the best with it. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, thanks to all our panelists for sharing their insights. Uh, thanks to the attendees for their engagement question and staying with us and to Philip and Michael for helping with the SCR virtual symposia session that we organized. I hope we can continue this conversation offline when we meet each other in conferences and through contacts that we made here. Have a wonderful day ahead. Bye-bye.